coming on the Agony Column podcast. Austin Grossman's first novel is Soon I Will Be Invincible. I wanted more. I want to really savor how cool it is to hang out with superheroes. But for every superhero... People know what you mean when you say a kind of comic book morality. So you know what those categories mean, but then you try to have real people live in those roles and see what happens. And of course people identify with the villain sometimes. I mean, who would you identify with? Find out who you identify with on the Agony Column podcast. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony. I'm not a criminal. I didn't steal a car. I didn't sell heroin or steal an old lady's purse. I built a quantum fusion reactor in 1978 and an orbital plasma gun in 1979 and a giant laser-eyed robot in 1984. I tried to conquer the world and almost succeeded, 12 times and counting. How do you take over the world? I've tried everything. Doomsday devices of every kind. Nuclear, thermonuclear, nanotechnological, gadgets that fit in a shoebox and that were visible from space. I've tried mass mind control. I've stolen the gold reserves in Fort Knox only to lose them again. I've traveled backward in time to change history, forward in time to escape it. I've stopped time altogether to live in a world of statues. I've commanded robot armies, insect armies, dinosaur armies, fungus army, army of fish, of rodents, alien invasion, interdimensional alien invasion, alien god invasion, even a corporate takeover, impossible industries, LLC. Each time it ended the same way. I've been to jail 12 times. When they take me away, it goes to the world court. Technically, I'm a sovereign power. You, you've seen these trials, the, the elemental, rocking horse, Dr. Stonehenge. They put you in a glass and steel box. I'm still dangerous, you know, even without my devices. People stare at you. They can't believe what you look like. They read out the long list of charges like a tribute. There isn't really a trial. It's not like you're innocent. But if you're polite, then at the end, they'll let you say a few words. They'll ask questions. They'll want to know why, why did you hypnotize the president? Why did you take over a chemical bank? I'm the smartest man in the world. Once I wore a cape in public and fought battles against men who could fly, who had metal skin, who could kill you with their eyes. I fought core fire to a standstill and the super squadron and the champions. Now I have to shuffle through a cafeteria line with men who tried to pass bad checks. Now I have to wonder if there will be chocolate milk in the dispenser and whether the smartest man in the world has done the smartest thing he could with his life. Austin Grossman has contributed writing and design to critically acclaimed computer games, including Deus Ex and System Shock. His first novel is Soon I Will Be Invincible. Welcome to the program, Austin. Thanks. It's great to be here. Austin, this is a wonderfully funny book. I'd like to talk to you a little bit about how you got to be a writer, and because your your path is fairly interesting. You are an English major, and you're getting your postdoc in Victorian literature, yet you've worked in games. So the career path from English literature to computer games is not intuitively <clears throat> obvious. Tell us a little bit about just how you started writing. Yeah, it gets worse. Point of fact, as an undergraduate, I was a psychology major. I had the idea I was going to be a psychotherapist, which is really the worst idea I've ever had. 
Actually, I started writing on the literary magazine in college, and I published a couple of stories there, which was enough to make me realize I didn't want to be a psychotherapist. But yet things took a bit of a left turn when I graduated. This was in 1992 when computer games weren't quite the hot stuff they are now. It was a little more of a hobby industry. You're right to say that was when it all went so wrong. I guess, you know, people on the literary magazine, they all sort of migrated to New York and, and um, got jobs in publishing. And I, I, I literally answered an uh, an ad in the in the Boston Globe in the classified section. I, I don't really, I, I cannot recapture what I was thinking at the time. I went and interviewed at the office and it was, it was awesome. It was full of Nerf toys and they had this amazing game they had just done. What can I say? There was some inner cue that this was, this was the way, this was the, this was the place to be. This was probably where it would work out for me a little better than in, in publishing. And then, uh, that sort of computer game sort of became my substitute MFA program. That was kind of my long sort of apprenticeship as a writer, which was very, very nice because, especially at the time, no one really, ca- no one really cares that much about the writing in computer games. So there was space to make a lot of mistakes. Of course, this was this was the early '90s. So, so in in, in fiction, there was a kind of there was the reign of uh, uh, Raymond Carver and sort of and Beattie and the minimalist short story was this kind of, was the kind of summit of the art. But instead, I got to write this crazy sort of pulp stuff, this pastiche fiction and, and science fiction. It was enormously liberating to be able to do that. At the back, there was still, I was still kind of, uh, I was still sort of the writer guy. I was still the guy who had written short stories in college. But it was being sort of stored up and kind of, I don't know, mulched together with the computer game stuff in my subconscious for a really long time. Tell me a little bit about the form of writing these games. What exactly did you write when you were writing for computer games? Right, especially at the beginning, I would write anything in the entire office that needed to be put into words would find its way to my desk. So I would write ad copy, I would write the manual, I'd write the strategy guide, and of course I'd, I'd write the text in computer games. And we, we were doing role-playing games, so I would, write, I would sort of plan the story sort of structurally. You know, I'd plot it and figure out how it was going to be told in the context of a computer game because of course you know you have people running around in a map and you have to figure out how to feed them the story somehow or walk them through the story when i think of role playing games i think of like guys with cards and dice and you're kind of pretending to be somebody and i don't really know much about that world so could you explain mm-hmm. to me what role playing game means in terms of a computer game what what right. the experience is as for the gamer right role playing game is it's shorthand for a whole you know raft of uh, genre conventions that doesn't fully relate to the to the Dungeons and Dragons stuff. Uh, when you when you say role playing game, it, it sort of cues you to a bunch of mechanics. It tells you that the game is going to be long, that it's going to have an extended story with broken into a series of sub goals. You know, go find the rod of somebody. Oh, the rod of somebody has been shattered into seven parts. Go find each of the seven parts. So so it's that there's that convention of plot. It tells you that it's probably going to be a sort of deeply nerdy genre piece that belonging either to science fiction or or, or fantasy uh, it, it, yeah it tells you that it's going to be lengthy and it, and it's it, and it, you're going to meet a lot of characters who are going to have sort of extended conversations in which you pick responses from a menu it tells you that there's going to be a lot of a great many uh, uh, statistics uh, describing how the world works and what your character is it tells you that 
you're just going to have to be a super geek to, to, to play it and really sort of get off on its conventions. We're going to have to find a better word than role-playing game since it seems very little about sort of acting out a role. Sadly, these games aren't as sort of character-driven as, as we want them to be. Immersive fiction, maybe. Immersive fiction is very nice. Interactive fiction, as it is said. Role-playing game kind of ex- cues you to like an extra set of sort of game mechanics that you know you're going to have your like strength and intelligence and, <laughs> and dexterity and so forth put into, uh, put into numbers, which is kind of a thing that only a small <laughs> sector of the population enjoys looking at. Small but, but loyal and much appreciated, I, I should say. <laughs> Once you started actually writing and designing games, I mean, do you like come up with an outline? Uh, is it a synopsis, a, 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 like a movie, uh, a treatment? How, how does that work? Well, you try, you try to come up with a pretty full plan of what you're going to do because... Could you uh, maybe use right. one of the specific games as an example um, that you work on? All right, on? well, we'll, we'll, th- we'll think, about, think about System Shock, I guess, which is a, an old but much-loved game. System Shock, I remember planning out System Shock. We had just finished Ultima Underworld 2, which was a sort of dungeon fantasy role-playing game, and we wanted to do something different, so we, we did System Shock, which is a, a science fiction game, and we decided to play with how the story was told because we were kind of frustrated with the conventions of, of, of role-playing game as they'd played out in Ultima Underworld 2. So we, we imagined this ruined space station, and instead of sort of being fed the story by this sort of talking head uh, goblins and so forth, the idea was that you would roam the space station and kind of put together and, and, and reconstruct the story of the, the disaster that had taken place there. We imagined a, a, ser- a series of, of levels. You imagine the map, and the map kind of tells the story. Uh, it's one of the sort of principal storytelling elements. So you imagine the map. You, man- you, you imagine where you start. You wake up in the suspended animation chamber, and then you, you break out of the door, and you, you start to see things are wrong, and you, you're in the medical wing of, of the space station, and you start to see zombies roaming around, and you start to um, recognize that things aren't really going according to the scenario you originally thought. You go down a level in the ele- elevator, and you start reading people's diaries and reading about how things went so so terribly wrong. So you, you plot the map, and you plot how the map tells the story. As you're doing that, you're, 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 you're making up a, a, a huge spec for like what, what the, the 3D artists have to build and what the programmers have to make work. You try to write, at least in, in those days, you try to write as complete a spec as possible because you're commanding an army of 20 or 40 um, uh, highly paid, paid, paid rather more than you are, uh, professionals who now have to um, race against time to, 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 to get this all built in two years. So um, so you, you sort of spec it out. And then at that point, you start actually writing writing words of dialogue that might actually actually be, be spoken in the game um, and uh, getting those ready to be recorded. So you're, you're, people are still sort of learning how creatively to work in computer games and, and how to manage that process. But that is the process as it sort of currently exists. It's a really interesting process for a writer. This is like a, more like a film director almost. It is probably closest, yeah, closest cousin to film. Try to sort of learn from film how to work collaboratively. Film is the closest analogy. And there's some uh, bleed over between film and the computer game industries. Now, here you are. You're an English major. You're, you're working on uh, computer games. I'm wondering what your literary influences are for uh, a game like System Shock. I, I mean, I imagine there's not a lot of Jane Austen in there. 
a little more than you'd think. For System Shock, I think the thing we, we had most in mind was Alien, the Ridley Scott film, that environment. Because video games are so often essentially sort of these literary pastiches, the set of influences varies, but is always fairly predictable. System Shock was made in 1992, so, you know, that was cyberpunk heyday. So it was all William Gibson and Neil Stevenson and, and so forth with a kind of dash of horror. When you're doing fantasy games, the list of influences, it's too obvious to even really mention. When you raise the question of influence, you bring up an interesting point because one of the things we're trying to solve about computer games is that they, they are such, such so derivatives, such a case of literary pastiche. We're actually trying to figure out how to make, how to find a more original voice for writing in computer games, how not to just be a, a sort of a secondhand execution of the genre masters. But there is a lot of genre fiction kind of behind video games, but there also strikes me too that there are some kind of metafictional influences. And I'm thinking of maybe like the way House of Leaves and the way some of those, the means of imparting information to the player of the game is more similar to the means that you get information out of a work of metafiction as opposed to fiction. Did any of those occur to you or did you think about the, what, that kind of literary structure? It's a really good point. Of course, I got into the game a bit before House of Leaves, although, of course, I've read it. You're exactly right. One of the things that you immediately find the moment you start writing in computer games is that a lot of your sort of formal storytelling tricks and conventions are basically just kind of shattered and lying on the floor, bleeding, because, yes, you're now dealing with a protagonist who can run around and shoot stuff quite independently of your whim. So you write a point of something like, I also believe that it's a broken apart story. And video games right now are the same kind of sort of broken apart story. Like, we're, we're, we're still not that good at it. You know, we, we play a little animation at the beginning of the game saying, hey, look, you know, your dad, the king, died and you have to sort something out. And then we have to let the player run around until they find the exit to their, their bedroom and get out into the main hall. But yes, these are stories that have been sort of broken apart and reconstructed to suit the rigors of the interactive form. That's still something we're trying to get better at. I wonder if you'd tell me a little bit about the process of writing these games. Again, I'm thinking just in mm -hmm. terms of a, a literary process, you write, you revise, again, done alone. Uh, I, I'm thinking that that's not the way that it's working out for, for a video game. We're still trying to invent the process of writing well for video games. I mean, being intentionally fairly deprecating of writing in video games because I, I feel like we, we're kind of lagging behind. The technology is so splendid and the writing hasn't, hasn't come along all that much in the last 15 years. So I, I hope I don't sound like too much of a jerk, but we, we're, trying to, we're trying to figure that out. I mean, typically people don't care that much about the writing in the video game, in video games. You know, they figure it's not what sells units. You know, you, you mentioned revising. That doesn't always happen in writing for computer games. Sometimes you just kind of slap it in. There are very well-written video games. And actually, some of the earliest games, the, the text adventures, Zork and so forth from Infocom, are really, really beautiful prose. It's almost as if the high wa watermark has, has come at the, the very beginning of the medium. Anyway, yes, typically the actual prose that you're writing for a video game, it's also a little bit vexed because you're sitting there, you're writing sort of like a guard saying, hey, I, I heard something. And that's a snippet of prose that's going to be sampled as audio. You're not in control of when exactly it's played, or although often you're not. It's a, it's a little cue that you've written to get information to the player that they've just, you know, knocked over a tray of dishes. 
and alerted the guards to their presence. But you don't have control of, of the timing, and frequently you don't have control of the context in which it's played. Like you've knocked over the dishes, it may, it may turn out the guard in the game is actually staring right at you when he says, "Hey, I think I heard something," and it and looks ridiculous. And the whole the whole fiction, the whole feeling that it's a living world, world kind of falls apart there. That's an example of the kind of craft that we're and and problem of craft that. We're still right now, and it's actually very exciting learning to get around. And games like System Shock, games like Half-Life, even Grand Theft Auto, were actually recent examples of places where the craft like lurched forward a good deal. So you can see that we're getting better at it. Well, what about Grand Theft Auto? This is a subtle difference for me when I was looking at this. It seemed to me that there are video games and there are computer games. <laughs> and there's, are, are they, is there a distinctive difference so far as you're concerned as a writer? Wow, I regret to say you have bumped into one of my hobby horses. There's an interesting division of cultures that happens because in the sort of prehistory of video games, there are actually kind of two DNA threads feeding into the industry as we have now. There was the entrepreneurial thread, the people who produced Pong and Space Invaders, and, and which has kind of evolved into the modern video game world. And then there's another thread, which, is, which was the kind of academic thread. The other early computer games were made in, by sort of hobbyists in, in universities, uh, and those are the people who brought us the early text adventures and some of the early role-playing games. So there are actually kind of two DNA threads that are still all sort of ghostly still there in the division between video games on consoles and, and computer games, which tend to be a little nerdier and a little more narrative and a little more slower to play. I mean, it's it's gradually being erased, but there's, a, there's an interesting division that kind of still lives there that goes back to our... Uh, it's kind of very interesting cultural divide. So you've, you've been working in video games for, say, 10 years, and, and you decide you want to write a novel. How did, this, how did this wonderful book come about? There was a good deal of sort of floundering around. The book actually, I think, started sometime in 1997 or 98, and I was working on a video game called Trespasser Jurassic Park, which was an enormously ambitious, what is the word? Let's say fiasco for shorthand. It was really, really late at night, and I was driving home, and suddenly, like, uh, I don't know, uh, whatever, my obsessive thoughts were always running, and suddenly they became the obsessive thoughts of this supervillain. And I actually I, I drive with a three-ring binder or spiral notebook on the passenger side because I'm that, I was that much of a frustrated writer at that point that I would do anything. So I threw it over to the side of the road and started scribbling down what became chunks of the first chapter of this book. It didn't really get serious until I went to graduate school at Berkeley, Berkeley uh, English Department, they don't offer an MFA, but they do offer some writing workshops. And I was in the writing workshops, and I was writing workshops. We kind of know the, a lot of the kinds of stories that come up there. Things were getting kind of angsty, things. And then he knew he would never see her again. Things were getting a little relationshipy, and I, I just kind of like, I don't know. I'm, I, can, I can be in a, a sort of oppositional classroom presence, and I just kind of wanted to write something different. So I started writing about this supervillain and so forth, and I wanted, I, I wanted to see if people got it or if they ran screaming from the room, and people actually sort of liked it. So I, you know, I wrote a few more stories that, that turned out to sort of, it seemed, it seemed like they belonged to the same thing. Uh, and this other voice that came up of the sort of cyborg character um, started to come up too, and I thought, wow, there's a second character in this. So that's how it started to become a, a book, although actually my brother Lev is actually, is, sort of truly responsible because I think I was sort of three and a half chapters in and I just kind of, and a bunch of notes and I, I just kind of shipped it off to him and said, you know, fix this, do something. And uh, he was the first one who actually told me that I was doing something something 
good and that I should try to uh, to finish it. So that that's that was that was the beginning of actually trying to make it into a a, a book length thing. Now, had you tried to write anything prose outside of uh, the game world before that? Had you when you were working in in these games beforehand? Had you like published tried to publish stories or? I tried to publish a few of my undergraduate stories, which actually just meant <laughs> I just mailed them to the New Yorker, and when they rejected it, I just gave up. I was like, New Yorker. Uh. <laughs> uh, so that there's actually a vast gulf. There was my undergraduate stories, and there was this, but there was actually nothing in the 15 years intervening. That was <laughs> it. Was just a, a long silence. Let's tell, talk a little bit about this book. It's it's a fascinating book in in a number of ways. First and foremost, what struck me was the prose voice of Dr. Impossible. I just heard how you first heard this voice while driving home one night. How did you hone this voice, and who are you reading? Clearly, I'm reading a lot of comic books. You touch on one of the things I really like about comic books, which is that it's so that superhero comics are so indiscriminate about genre. They'll put anybody next to anybody. Like, or Superman will fight a wizard one day and aliens from space the next. It's this very sort of brash disregard for anything sacred about the genres they're borrowing for. And that's kind of, that kind of mashed up sense of things was something I, I really liked. So I, obviously I'm reading a lot of comic books, and there are some really good comic book authors that fed into this. Obviously Alan Moore, obviously Frank Miller, uh, obviously Neil Gaiman, and then uh, people like, you know, everyone knows the good comic book writers are Grant, Grant Morrison, Ed Brubaker, Gail Simone, uh, Mark Millar, like Brian Michael Bendis. I mean, they're really good comic book writers writing writing now. And and honestly, as I was, as I was writing it, I was just kind of cribbing from them a great deal, trying to sort of do as well as they did uh, what they do. Literary authors as, as well. I read a lot of Jonathan Lethem, which I really quite like. I'm a little cranky about contemporary authors. There aren't that many that I truly, truly sort of dig. I really like Kelly Link. William Gibson was a big figure for me. Some of his sort of like hyper-compressed, detailed sort of prose show-offy stuff I, I tried to tried to do as well, that sense of sense of richness that he, that, that he brings to his world creation. Uh, th- those are the people, uh, the living authors off the top of my head that I kind of had in mind. And there's a dash of Donald Bartleby in there somewhere. Uh, the actual prose voice of Dr. Impossible... I'm not really sure who to say I, I ripped off for that. There's all, I mean, there's, everybody has in, the, you know, in their head the sense of the, the cartoon mad scientist and what that person talks like. Talks like Dr. Impossible. T- talks like Dr. Impossible <laughs> or you know, Dr. Doom or Lex Luthor. I, I extrapolated that voice into an inner prose voice, into a novelistic environment. Notes from Underground, I think, was my, was, was my first confrontation with a, with a voice that sound, sounded like that voice. I try not to, to cite... Dostoevsky in an interview because I don't think it would move a lot of books, but that that's obviously the, the the precursor work here. If I'm really thinking of it, tell me why did you write this as a novel? I mean, superhero fiction, comics, movies, graphic novels, novels not so many. <laughs> I started writing it well before um, Fortress of Solitude came out, but I mean, it was a sort of sort of prose experiment when I began it. But when you get into it, you see that it kind of kind of works like. You know, you I read comic books and I kind of I kind of savor the panels and I kind of stare at the little details that the artist put in. I wanted to get more from comics than I was getting from the the, the graphical format. You know, I wanted to want to get all the senses. I wanted to sort of dwell in that world uh, even more richly. So 
the sense of how people walk, how they smell, how it feels to live in a superpowered body. I wanted more. I wanted to step into that world as fully as possible and to and also to sort of slow down the, the storytelling process a little bit to really savor how cool it is to hang out with superheroes. That was the prose experiment of the book by not drawing the characters to kind of enrich the lived experience of reading comics. The reading experience, I think, is more immediate than the reading comics experience because the, the reader has to fully submit and, and really engage. It's, it, I think that the reading makes you more, as a reader, you become part of the artistic process because you have to create all this, the visuals and such in your mind. I tried to recreate how it felt for me to read comics and f- fill in details as I read them about you know who the characters were and how they, they might be feeling or wh- what they had for breakfast in the morning. I, I tried to recreate that sense. So you're right. You're, you're asking more, more engagement from the reader. And the, the experiment was, would you get it? And sometimes you do. One of the things you do quite well in this book is you turn the fantastic into the men- mundane again and again. And this is a really effective tactic. It's it's funny, and it really puts us in the place of these superheroes. So you have this whole uh, uh, full page of statistics about superheroes that opens the novel. Um, you have these gritty details, you know, the, how your cyborg hero is solving local crimes by sitting there hunched over listening to the police scanner. Talk about the real-worldization, I guess, uh, of these kind of super characters. Yes, well, I suppose it's a driven by a deep wish for superheroes to actually be real. But, I mean, the tightrope act was to shift this kind of genre material into the real world without deflating it, without making it seem silly, to like to make it, to make it feel loved and invested in even more when it's put into the real world. And that just makes it funnier and cooler and more, more detailed, more more rich. There's so many things that moving it into the real world does. It makes the character sort of grow a little bit and experience more interesting problems and more interesting emotional range. You have characters that they are divorced, characters whose superpowers cause them chronic pain or they have to take pills to sort of stabilize their weird metabolism. They go on Saturday Night Live. I don't know. It gave me just many, so many more toys to, to play with. I wanted to put the superheroes into into different situations and and watch them react and by watching them react make them sort of fuller people. It just seemed the, the fun way to play with it. Again, the trick being not to let the real world deflate costume heroes or make them seem seem silly or sort of marginal, but rather to sort of intensify and in, enrich the the genre as it stood. You do a lot of satire in this book, and there's kind of it's interesting because there's two you satirize the superhero genre relentlessly and constantly, but there's also a lot of political satire. I, there's the great the Daco film of the New Champions is, is a great example. You know, you will the grandiose down to size. So in the portion that you read, where Doctor Impossible is gone from conquering the world to hoping for chocolate milk. I don't really think of it as willing it down to size as so much like sort of expanding its dynamic range to include a lower end without sort of taking away the high end. These people sort of had their superheroics, but in addition, they have lives as real people. I thought of it as opening up the range rather than shifting the range down. It is funny when you do the lower end, but I think it's not quite satire of the of the superhero genre because, again, it, it doesn't sort of deflate it or make it feel silly. It just adds moments when it, when it's aware of, of, of being silly. Uh, Give us the setup of this book, how you constructed it, and what is happening as the novel starts. 
as the novel starts, there's a, a supervillain, a sort of mid-career supervillain who's he's been around for a bunch of sort of cycles of supervillain life. He's tried to conquer the world a bunch of times, 12 times, but he's in prison again. Being in prison, he's left alone with his own thoughts. He's a sort of dynamic action character who's been forced to stay in one place. His thoughts run, and he starts to sort of think about his career. And he is a kind of cartoon-mad scientist, but he's slowly kind of like tweaking to it, slowly becoming aware that he's a cartoon-mad scientist and starting to think about emotionally sort of what that feels like and where uh, exactly is he going with all of this. Catching him at that moment of awareness is, is actually kind of interesting and fun. On the other side of the equation, there's a second narrator that alternates, and her name is Fatal, and she's a cyborg, a woman who's been sort of reconstructed as half-machine after an accident. She's a very different kind of person. She's much younger, and she's kind of kind of traumatized and still not quite over the accident. It's a play on trauma because all superheroes, most superheroes seem to originate in some kind of trauma. She's just been giving her, her big break to join with the most famous superhero group in the in the world, which is reuniting. She's forced to ask, is she one of these people? Is she a superhero? Is she good enough? Is she she weird enough? What exactly does it does it mean to be a superhero when you meet these people and, and find out that they're real and, and that they kind of squabble and get, get divorces and look kind of odd up close? She sort of starts this journey through the super hero world, and there's, this, there's a kind of a, a mystery holding it together, which is that the most powerful superhero in the world has gone missing, uh, Corefire. Everybody wonders where he is, and of course the superheroes think the supervillain is behind it. Supervillain doesn't know who's behind it and wants to conquer the world. Things run from there. One thing you do is you create a, a, a world with a history, and it's really a fascinating world in history. I wonder if you care to talk about how you came up with this alternate history, and you even give us a timeline in the back. Did you write the timeline before you wrote the book, or as you wrote the book? I actually wrote it after the book. I reconstructed it from events in the book, and I modeled the world I was creating on the kind of long-running continuities that Marvel and DC Comics have. I really, really wanted to mimic the sense that this was a world in which many, many, many stories had already taken place. Marvel and DC continuities have been running for so long now that the, the characters have these amazing sort of layered histories behind them because, you know, every every year, like, you know, Superman or Green Lantern has to have some huge crisis to sell comic books. Everyone has to seem like the biggest thing ever. And all those crises stay in in story continuity. So they, they build up into these really, really characters with these really, really crazy histories that they've gone back in time and fought themselves, lost the powers and gained the powers and been killed and resurrected and gone to the center of the universe and come back. And, and they're still the same characters and they remember all that stuff. And they bump into villains they fought like 20, 20 times or the children of those villains at this point or, you know, villains who were old and got rejuvenated. You know, it, it's a really, really interesting and fun story space that I, I wanted to and kind of create. And, and story space that, as I said, kind of weirdly mingles all genres because you know that Superman had that issue where he fought Hercules or he fought some god from outer space. Eventually, they have to admit that all these characters live in the same place and that Thor, that Thor is actually a real guy and that he's a Norse god and he hangs out with Iron Man who just built a robot suit. And Anyway, so there's these crazy, crazy story spaces that kind of came about by accident for Marvel and DC, but I wanted to do it on purpose and kind of leverage the cool storytelling ability of that kind of context. Wow. 
there's lots of one thing that I really like about this book is there's uh, we have really different kinds of superheroes and, and supervillains crammed into the same narrative, and they both seem equally realistic. So you have somebody like Black Wolf, who's kind of a Batman type figure, or somebody even like Corfire, who's Superman but more science fictional. You'll have somebody kind of crime fiction, science fiction, and then you have somebody straight out of fantasy. Elfin, for example, and somebody's supernatural horror, and that's like Mr. Mystic. Tell us a little bit about creating these different types of villains and heroes, the genres of villains and heroes. Oh, yeah. Well, it was just kind of lovely. I mean, everything I wrote in this book, I wrote it because it was just fun to write about. It was just fun to sort of sit back and imagine these characters and have fun with the prose and the, the resonant storylines that you're you're cribbing from crime fiction or, or fantasy or whatever, and, and to, to build your little mini fantasy character. And then you get the second fun of having those characters meet each other. And uh, I really tried to sort of leverage that when Fatal the cyborg fights Elfin the fairy. And what happens when a cyborg fights a fairy? Like, let's just sit down and imagine that step by step. Like, the, the cyborg's onboard computer doesn't even know what a fairy is. And this fairy doesn't know what a cyborg is. Clearly, they're not going to get along that well. And you just, just kind of trying to work out that logic is just a really, really fun prose exercise. There just couldn't be anything more fun to write about, as far as I can tell. You have, of course, some conflicts in this book. Good versus evil. And, you know, when you were talking earlier, uh, in reading from Dr. Impossible's bit, it, of course, one of the things this book ponders is the nature of evil. And I'm thinking, well, gosh, maybe evil's just the guy who happens to lose. That is an idea that I had to put out there. There's a sense, sense in that, yeah, good and evil are sort of like offered in, initially in their kind of uh, stereotypical capacities. Like the evil person is the sneering person who builds robots and robs places and the the good guy is the person that punches them. People know what you mean when you say a kind of comic book morality. So you know what those categories mean, but then you try to have real people live in those roles and see what happens. And of course people identify with the villain sometimes for very a good reason as far as I'm concerned. He gets the best lines. Gets the best lines. There are these, there's these fascinating sort of generative, ambitious, thwarted, poignant characters. I mean, who would you identify with? in any story. And there's this total sort of richness of feeling that has actually kind of been pushed into the villain role and left out of the hero role that, like, you have to sort of want to explore. And then so when you make these characters sort of live, like, you realize that there are much more important issues than who's who's robbing the banks. You have a lot of fun imagining different powers in this book. And I really love all the powers. How did you go about imagining all these various powers and then mapping out how, what kind of power turns you into what kind of, what genre of villain or hero? It's a good question. And it should be said that when people heard I was writing a novel about superheroes, people tend to think you're, you're making up a bunch of wacky powers, like turning into a chair and so forth. Uh, and I actually tried to sort of stick with the classic powers for the, for the most part, the sort of flight and invulnerability that was the generative moment for me was superheroes are such sort of complex emotional characters, but it, it, it always felt to me that some of the complexity of their personalities had been imaginatively sort of 
pushed into their superpowers. Like a character like Rogue on the X-Men, right? She can't touch anybody because she absorbs their memories and their superpowers. And that kind of distorts her own personal life because of course she can't, can't touch people. Whatever, Cyclops, where rays involuntarily shoot out of his eyes so he can never sort of show his face. That's As written, he's a little bit of a dull character, but his powers appear as a kind of warp or extension or, or metaphor for how he, he interacts with with people. So that clearly seemed to me how, how superpowers were of use and how they fit into who a person was. For some reason, I didn't have any trouble coming up with powers and figuring out who was a hero and who was a, a villain. I wish I could explain it more, but this was where something just kind of sort of subconscious and intuitive kicked in. The weird thing was that it was, it was really easy to make up the characters. They just kind of sort of sprang into being. It felt like recognition rather than invention when I when I thought of who the characters were and their powers and, and their their names. I can't even can't even bring words to it. You know, they just they just made sense to me. For all the humor in this book and it's very funny, there are also some really amazingly poignant passages. Uh, beautiful, emotional, sentimental almost, but but very effective, not 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 corny at all. They're moving. And I wonder if you care to talk about writing those passages and moving between the different modes? It's a good question. Like I said, I, I always felt like reading comics that, that there were sort of deeper feelings lurking sort of underneath the page. A comic book like Lex Luthor has to, has to feel bad sometimes, like when he's, when, kind of when he's off stage, uh, not getting his butt kicked by, by Superman. I wanted to include some moments of, of real feeling in the book. They work so nicely, sort of counterweighted to the, the superhero action. It was really just kind of fun and, and felt logical to sort of include them. There's a, there's a rhythm to the book where the moments of, of contemplation and feeling are, are, are set off by the, the, the moments of pulp. Now I'm praising my own work. It's how, how ridiculous. <laughs> but the point is, like, it, it, felt, it felt so right to me. It felt so, so, so natural to include those, those moments. I don't even know what more to say about them, except that, like, I didn't want to write a book that was only jokes. And I didn't want to write a book that was only feeling, but it, it really felt right to write a book where, you know, people putting on costumes and flying around kind of, I don't know, kind of sustained or, or counterweighted the, or, or brought into relief the moments of, of, of feeling. I, I felt like there were the feelings that were always there behind comic books, but you just had to hold the cameras for a little longer on the characters after the fight ended to watch what they felt when they were done zooming around to find those moments. It just felt sort of, sort of natural to, to have them. This book, of course, has some wonderful set pieces, uh, action scenes. And I wonder if you care to talk about those, especially as they would, I presume, do they hark back to some of your work in the computer games? I can't really say that they do because in computer games, the things that you, you don't script are the fight scenes, right? What you tend to do is ladle on a bunch of story and then put the robots down and let them fight. The fighting parts tend to be what you don't control. The original concept for the book when I started it was that it was going to be there would be like no fight. Everything would be what you didn't see in the comics, and all the traditional comic book stuff would happen off stage. Thank God I abandoned that that premise and included some superhero fights because, wow, who doesn't like superhero fights? I have to say that the super the, the action set pieces were really hard. That was where I really felt the bite of not having graphics to work with because. Um, I mean, superheroes have this kind of kinetic action scenes, and I think that those have grown up sort of in harmony with uh, what comic books are good at, which is showing people sort of swooping around. And when you're writing a novel, oh, my God, you have to figure out where everybody's arms and legs are and who's standing where. 
that was technically the, the hardest stuff to do, but also, again, the most fun because you really got to watch people unleashing their, their powers and taking the, the gloves off. And really, like, I really liked, you know, I like, I like to think about people hitting each other. Like, enjoy that so very much in the comics. And um, uh, it belonged here. Just as, as kind of technically as sitting down and working stuff out, working on the pacing and the description, it was the most, I won't say work, but it was the mo- moment of most sort of intensive thinking about craft to, to carry that stuff off. Every superhero has an origin, and, and that's often one of the most fun parts of a superhero. And it makes me think that a, that superheroes, they appeal, they appeal to, I think, the American cult of individuality. I, I have to say that after I read this book, when I, I went for a walk downtown, I, I walked around and I looked, expected everybody to have a... You know, be wearing capes. <laughs> I went, I'm walking around seeing all these normal dress out. Where are all the capes? <laughs> so I wonder if you'd care to talk about origins of superheroes and how that kind of harkens back to our own interests in who we are. Uh, yeah, yeah. I love origins. I obsess about them. And, and you know, like, you know, one of the first bound edition of comic books I had was was Origins of Marvel Comics, that that compilation that Marvel had put out that just tells the origin stories of superheroes. They're just one of the, the richest aspects of the superhero story. Everybody does have an origin, especially like, especially if you live, live somewhere like in, in New York or Los Angeles where everybody moved there for somebody else. From somewhere else, everybody's got that, that childhood in the, in the suburbs. Everybody's got that incredibly shaping trauma that is has has, has pushed them in, and squeezed them into their adult identity like everybody does have an origin and one of the things i love about superheroes is that they teach you about how trauma shapes you and makes you and makes your story permanent but also it gives you your superpowers it makes you it gives you this it, it, it gives you the, the incredible sort of high functioning thing that that you have whatever it is that has made you into a, a functional adult if God willing, you, you are a functional adult. Uh, I love origin stories. God, and superheroes, whatever that trauma was, it's so ruling that it actually made them put on like a leotard with a little sign on their chest about what trauma it was. I, I feel like real adults like stop only just short of doing that because people are so, so marked by wherever they came from and what their shaping moment was. Uh, superheroes only, only dramatize that a little bit more. Although, as a sidebar, much as I obsess about origins, one of my favorite superhero films, perhaps the only actually truly successful superhero films, was The Incredibles, uh, you know, the, the Pixar animation. And when you get to the end of The Incredibles, you realize you don't know what anybody's origin is. The children, of course, were born with their superpowers, but Elastigirl, like Mr. Incredible, you never know how they got their powers. It was one of those interesting superhero films that completely lied to the question of, of origin, which I guess goes to show that superhero stories are sort of more more mobile, flexible than I think they are. Yeah, Soon I Will Be Invincible is, a, is an origin-obsessed book. There's, there's no question. I, I wonder if you care to talk about the process of creating characters in a book like this. You have a lot of options, and, and they're fun options. It's cliche to say that characters just sort of came to life, but some of them kind of did. I mean, for the champions, the superhero group, they were somewhat planned, and I, that I knew you had to have certain characters kind of just kind of representing their type of superhero. So you have to have the, the wizard, you have to have the fancy character who's wandered in from somewhere, you have to have the, the vigilante. Creating the characters becomes a little harder to speak to because usually they just kind of showed up as a little bit of language. Fatal, the cyborg, she just showed up as a few sentences to begin with. That kind of condensed for me, sort of what it was like to be a cyborg and somebody who's kind of sort of numbed by that or getting over the trauma of that and still sort of has trouble feeling and uh, still getting used to how it feels to be partly a machine. I'm a very sloppy writer from the perspective of sort of 
planning and consciously doing things, but characters just kind of showed up as language, and I built them out from there. I think Damsel and and Black Wolf, they, they showed up as a little bit of banter between the two characters, and I thought to myself, who's talking here? Who must be saying this stuff? As a writer, I'm a really crappy planner, but uh, I'm fortunate that characters tend to sort of wander into frame, and I managed to sort of crap grab them and build them out a little bit. It's surprising that you describe yourself as a, as a and not the best planner because you would expect that from somebody who has to throw down an outline for 40 uh, artists that you would that you would just have this master plan on your wall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever. You, you should talk to some of my former producers about that. <laughs> and they they know I'm not that, not that good at it and it gives them gives them fits. Um yeah, what can I say? You know, as a writer, you have to do a lot of different things. Inevitably, you're not. Some of them are not going to be your forte, but you're just going to have to kind of. I guess that's what craft is: is learning learning how to do that stuff, even though it's it's not when it comes naturally. I mean, and it was good that people working working in computer games was good for me in that it made me learn to do stuff that I was not naturally that that good at. But of course, yes, in that situation where you have to do it, or and if you make a mistake, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars in, in burn rate as many who have worked with me know. So, yeah, uh, what can I say? That's the, that's the thing I just had to, to learn to do. Now, will there be a sequel to this? Are, are you what, what are you working on now? Are you working on a new novel? I'm trying to figure out what to, what to work on now. One thing I'm working on is, is something that might be, might be a kind of book of Ling's short stories that fills out some of the walk-on characters that show up in, in soon I will be invincible characters who just just appear as a as a name like the infinitesimal seven. I've been thinking about b- building out those characters. Honestly, I've actually been thinking about writing a book about a novel set in the computer game industry because it's such a, a fun environment to to work in. And if you work in computer games, you know you know that it has its own sort of idiolect. It has its own jargon and it has its own structure and sense of, of humor, obsessiveness, absurdity. So I've been thinking about writing a write, writing a a geek culture novel. A geek culture novel, writing about a company and the way it interacts with the story it's trying to create at the same time. That is to say, the, the computer game. Because you have these we- weird situations where you have just like dozens of really, really smart people working really, really hard to create a sort of very silly story. And, and, and it's a story they have to live with sort of eight hours a day, and it kind of warps and develops its own in-jokes. And um, I'm thinking about and, and its own kind of interactions with the personalities of the people who are making it. So I'm, of doing that novel, although I mean, truth to tell, I'm still still messing around with stuff. I also have to ask: Is this have they snapped up the movie rights to this yet? We are actively engaged in doing something very cool with that. That I'm not allowed to talk about. We'll say I'll say that it's it's actively being being worked on, and we're working really hard. We're, we're working really hard not to just unload the movie rights, but to but to plan something that's that's really going to reproduce the, the, the sensibility of the book on, on, on film uh, in, a, in a really interesting and fun way. So short answer is uh, we're doing something. <laughs> We've been speaking with Austin Grossman. His new book is Soon I Will Be Invincible. Thank you for joining me, Austin. Thank you so much. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony.